Hey everyone, we have an intriguing story to share with you today, but we do want to let you know that the discussion includes references to suicide. If that's a topic you'd like to avoid, you'll want to tune out around 42 minutes into the episode. Hello and welcome to Tales from the Ruther, a podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library, which is on the campus of Wayne State University and is in the heart of Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host, and with me is Troy Eller English. Wow, did we have a busy summer. Where you been? All over. Seriously. <laughs> so have I. I haven't seen you in months. I know. <laughs> this, this is, folks, why we haven't had a podcast in a month and a half? Oh, it's been longer than that. Been longer than that. You know, G- Daniel, Grace, June. and Merritt have been complaining to me. Mm-hmm. Well, Merritt to like Bart, but... <laughs> <laughs> They're wondering where our podcasts were, uh-huh. so we were very busy. Lots of work travel, mm-hmm. a bit of personal travel, mm-hmm. and then we forgot how to push I, the on buttons. I discovered that I am allergic to the ocean. That's what I discovered this summer. That's so sad. <laughs> no one should be allergic to the ocean. I'm sorry to hear that. We can talk about that later. Yeah. We'll do that later. Because on today's podcast, we're actually not going to be talking about the ocean, but we're talking about food. And we talk about the distribution of food. We learn more about a company that is attuned to mass capitalism in the most evilest of ways. A company that is synonymous with the term Banana Republic. And if you have not guessed yet, we are going to be talking about the United Fruit Company, a company that from the late 19th century till, well, we can say in the past few decades, is a company that has controlled the economic outcomes of Colombia, Panama, Honduras, Guatemala with imperialist power, propping up dictators and exploiting workers for the growth of the profit of the mostly the banana. Actually, we will be looking at the history of its CEO, Eli Black, and talking with Matt Garcia, author of the book Eli and the Octopus, the CEO who tried to reform one of the world's most tor- notorious corporations. Matt Garcia is a longtime researcher who has been at the Ruther many times. We know him well. And he's also a Ralph and Richard Lazarus professor of Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean studies and of history at Dartmouth College. He has written extensively about food distribution, looking at the bottom up, mostly about the United Farm Workers. And here is his attempt at looking at the top and what the top is thinking about how to feed the world. What Garcia does in his book, Eli and the Octopus, is trace the rise of Eli Black from this mostly unknown businessman to one of the most powerful CEOs in the late 19th 1960s, early 70s. Eli Black, a first-generation Polish Jew, was to be descendant to be a rabbi, but after a few years as an Orthodox rabbi, he shifted gears and went into the world of business and began working in the investment bank Lehman Brothers. Well, one thing led to another, and next thing you know, he is the CEO of the United Fruit, and at that time, which was importing one-third of all bananas in the United States. That's a huge, powerful company. And you think, that's it, right? But Garcia uncovers that Black was insistent in bringing his religious morals into the world of corporations, a beginning of what we can call social responsibility, corporate social responsibility, whatever you want to call it. Well, you got to listen to the podcast and read the book Eli and the Octopus by Matt Garcia to see what ways he tried to bring this new idea of social good to the world of greed.
Hey, Matt, thanks for joining our podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Let's just get right started. Um, first thing I want to know is like, how did you stumble across this story to tell? You're Mr. Like bottom up farm workers, food supply chain. Here you are looking at the top down here. So what? why do you want to tell this story? Yeah, I think first off, uh, just um, really capture the essence of this project, which is um, it is a top down story. It's a story of um, a CEO that tried to do right um, by his cons- uh, customers and his employees, of course, his shareholders, um, but from a bottom-up perspective, and that's where it started. Um, I wrote a book called uh, From the Jaws of Victory, which is um, heavily dependent on the Ruther Library um, archives, and uh, I told the story of the farm workers movement um, beyond the 1970s into the 70s and all the messiness that happened there. Um, and I uh, paired that research in the Ruther with oral histories, um, as I try to do with every uh, book project. And one of those oral histories was Marshall Gans. Uh, he was a organizer and volunteer for UFW. And, um, you know, he also wrote a book. Um, and um, But he was marveling at uh, this one figure, the CEO, who was um, like his father. His father was a rabbi. Um, and owned a company uh, during the height of the lettuce boycott. And he chose to uh, broker peace with the farm workers and with Cesar Chavez. And um, Marshall was like, who does that? And why did he do that? And we really didn't have an answer at that moment. Um, We could speculate, but um, it was a a question that grew in my mind and it just uh, festered into this book, uh, Eli and the Octopus. And that man was... Eli Black, um, who owned um, Interharvest, but what was interesting, it was like an elephant, right? That might have been the trunk, (laughs) Um, but the body was actually United Fruit. Um, And then there was another, I guess you'd call it a leg, which was um, uh, Morel. Uh, and there were some other uh, pieces like AW Root Beer and Baskin Robbins, uh, Foster, Foster Grant uh, eyeglasses. Um, but, you know, mostly what he was doing was food. Um, and so Inner Harvest had um, the lion's share of contracts um, with regards to um, selling uh, lettuce um, to the rest of the country. Like 60% of the lettuce sold in the country was from California, and it was from this company, um, Interharvest. And so when he decided to side with the farm workers and, si- and, and sign contracts, he was breaking with all of these uh, other lettuce growers who were committed to fighting Chavez to the death, right? And they signed contracts with the Teamsters and they really tried to break the the the, the UFW when it was moving from its success in citrus to, to lettuce. So um, his defection from his peers was meaningful. And um, as Marshall said, he got a lot of anti-Semitic shit. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, funny thing was is that uh, that was a, the smoke and I never found the gun, if you will, that there was really kind of bald, anti-Semitic language used against him. But certainly they saw him as an outsider because he was based in in New York, whereas all the rest of the growers were based in in California. Well, let me talk about Eli Black. Who was this guy? All right, before he became this, you know, uh, uh, huge person, owner of food supply companies, who was Eli Black? Where did he come from? And how did he start developing himself? Yeah, so he was born in Lublin, Poland. Um, So this was a place that was 
contested um, terrain between the Russian Empire and the German Empire. Um, and it was a place where Jews had a very difficult time, but they had kind of carved out a space for themselves. Um, there were many yeshivas there. Uh, yeshivas are a place where you um, refine your studies and you become a rabbi. Um, it's kind of like a university in some ways. Um, and so he came from a gener uh, from a, a, a family of, uh, including him, 10 generations of rabbis. Um, but um, in the early 20th century, um, things became very difficult. If you read Tim Snyder's um, Bloodlands, you understand how difficult it was. And um, I actually read that book after writing this book yeah. um, to kind of get a sense of what it was like in the period that he left. Um, and he got out just at the right time. We know from um, what happens uh, subsequently to his migration date, which was 1925. Um, so we're talking about Nazi Germany and we're talking about the gen uh, um, genocide, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, um, you know, what's interesting about 1925, he comes to New York, um, but he comes uh, after the 1924 Johnson Reed Act, um, which is there's restrictions placed on Southern and Eastern Europeans, um, it, definitely on uh, Asian immigrants. But uh you know, it's a kind of thinly veiled attempt to uh, keep out people that are thought to be degenerates in some ways, and Jews were definitely thought to be. Um, so, you know, the question I had was, how did he break through the, that uh, that restriction that happened in 24 since he came in 25? Well, it was family reunification, um, because his father, Ben Zion, um, preceded uh, the family and really just beat the Johnson uh, Reed Act by a, a few months um, before it was implemented. And so, um, his mother, his two sisters, and he uh, were able to come. He was, I think, four years old, and um, uh, he came because of family reunification. And it was really kind of the last big wave of Jewish immigration uh, from Europe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what he found in New York was uh, this thriving, emerging uh, Jewish world, um, which I go into some depth. And like I said, we could go down the rabbit hole of that. Um, it was the most fascinating part uh, lesson for me because I'm not a Jewish historian, but I learned so much um, and uh, I'm just so grateful <laughs> to have like had, had that window open to me. So um, he studies to be a rabbi like his father and like the many generations of men in his family before. Um, but then, um, you know, uh, the 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 Holocaust happens, uh, World War II happens, and uh, the revelations of what's going on there. And um, you know, maybe this is jumping ahead where you want to go, but basically, uh, he's he's scandalized, uh, shocked by what um, is being uncovered, um, and feels like uh, being a rabbi is just too small a role in the world that he needs to have um, more intervention in. And mm. so that's why he decides um, at a very young age that uh, he needs to um, take up business because um, business is the, the, the thing that um, has the most uh, transformative power in the place he's now living in New York. Um, and he also feels like it has the greatest potential in a world that is uh, increasingly influenced by flows of capital and, and business. So basically the whole thing of get out of the shtetl and yep. move open and expand out. But his father was not only a rabbit, but also he worked as a kosher butcher. 
Yes. So uh, he was a kosher butcher of of chicken. Yeah. Um, and I never actually found his union card. So was he a member of the unions? Um, cannot say for sure, but definitely lived in a world where um, the probably strongest unions amongst uh, uh, Jews in New in New York were these uh, people that were working in meat producing and kosher. Uh, meat production. Um, and so um, over a short period of time, those unions become increasingly corrupt. And um, I think uh, that really affected his view of unions, although he didn't actually put that into uh, um, his policies and his, his work as a CEO until much later. But um, his father uh, did supply um, kosher meat uh, to the community, and um, he had a kind of, uh, meaning Eli had a front row seat to um, how um, uh, people maintained their uh, faith, um, but also how it fueled a kind of economy around being Jewish. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, as I'm beginning towards, it's like a segue into he becomes he goes through he uh, he gets his education in business and he started at American Security Companies where a mentor of his gives him I, I guess hands him like a folder and says here's a bunch of small companies pick one and he picks AMK right this yes. uh, bottling cap company what did he see what was he thinking about this company and on the supply chain of grocery stores at this time of like what was this the early fifties right yes. Yeah, so it's 53 when he becomes head of AMK, and it's um, uh, William Rosens Rosenwald, um, who is uh, someone who's been written about, or his father was written about by Hasia Diner. But um, this was a person that his father was the one that um, uh, ran Sears Roebuck, Roebuck, and then American Securities uh, was the corporation that um, Eli joined, and so. Um, what was really important about that was that he sort of gave him his start and his pick of the lot of um, not prime uh, uh, companies to work with, but certainly had a portfolio, had a set of portfolios he could choose from. And AMK appealed to him because I think it represented something that was of great interest to Eli moving through his um, his life as a businessman, which is it, it sort of represented what he called a backwards uh business in a backwards excuse me let me get let me get that right a backwards company in a backwards industry um and so what that meant was that it had um hidden potentials um but it also seemed to be uh, a company or excuse me an industry that was on its way out in terms of downsizing and maybe even phasing out of the modern economy so what did uh, Seal Cap, American Seal Cap, do? Which was AM AMK. They made the um, paper wax lids for glass milk bottles. And right. so, as you know, as we know, in terms of how we drink milk today and how we purchase milk today, we buy it at the grocery store. We buy it in plastic containers or cartons. Um, and so we don't have those um, unless we have, you know, very bourgeois um, milk. Um, raw milk. I do in Vermont, um, but very few <laughs> people have that. And um, so, you know, these were going to go the way of the dodo. Uh, it, it was not something that seemed to have a lot of upside. But what he did is he um, pivoted um, from those uh, 
wax paper uh, tops to making um, uh, paper cups. So he started challenging like Dixie, for example. Um, he also pivoted and got into um, the wax paper cartons that we know uh, competes with plastic uh, gallon jugs today. Um, and then he began to um, invest in the kind of component parts that develop uh, these paper products. Um, mm -hmm. So um, he was able to take something that was destined for the dustbin of history and make a huge profit. So in 1953, that company, uh, I think, was making five million dollars, right, in sales. And by 1960, because of this diversification, um, he's making thirty-three million dollars. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so this is a huge success story. Um, now it's very much on the margins of uh, Wall Street and Business America. Um, but it did demonstrate to people on the inside within New York, within finance, that this guy had uh, a future, that he was a magician to some extent. Yeah, he, he he really had an eye on the future of how things were supplied and how things were going to be delivered post-World War II, which completely changed everything, how we do everything. And his next idea, his next his next look of reforming business and how the model is, of course, when he acquired John Morrell and company yeah. um, with the same kind of expectations of changing this backward company and this backward way of doing things. But this is the first time we really had to take on with a union of the meatpacking industry, isn't it? Yes, most definitely. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, of the backward industries, meat uh, kind of presented itself as the most backward um, in his mind. Um, and that is because in his mind and many others that observed the meat industry, it had rich potential because, you know, during um, the post-war period, um, you had single family homes, you had uh, more uh, consumption um, in terms of, uh, you know, more equitable distribution of wealth. And so people are eating more meat, for example. Um, but, uh, and we also have more women in the workforce flowing out of World War II. So the, the myth is, right, that women went back to the domestic sphere after World War II, but that's not true. Um, we had more uh, double-income uh, family homes, and so women um, were contributors that just wasn't uh, readily acknowledged. Now we know that that's, that's untrue, but he understood that. And so um, what he saw was that there's greater capacity to buy meat. Um, and that they needed to package it in a way that uh, allowed for people to make uh, foods, make um, meals quickly, right? Um, couldn't break down a, a side of beef at home anymore, right? Or do the cutting of the steaks uh, from uh, the primal. Um, so in any case, uh, the problem as he saw it and many industry watchers saw it is that they were encumbered by all of these union contracts that grew out of the 1930s and the Great Depression, right? And mm -hmm. so those unions really kind of encumbered uh, these um, meat production plants because it required a kind of division of labor and a certain pay structure um, that uh, prevented it from being a profitable enterprise and also moving towards that kind of uh, production at the site of uh, disassembly, um, as opposed to sending the, the, the side of beef to the market and having a butcher, uh, cut it, um, on site, um, for you in the grocery store. 
Um, and so the one company that uh, started to advance in a very profitable way was uh, Iowa uh, Beef Packers or IBP in Iowa. And the reason why it advanced is because it came on the scene after the 1930s. So they weren't mm. encumbered by all of these um, uh, contracts that were um, there to kind of protect a way of life um, and to protect the worker and to keep wages uh, um, high. So greater distribution of the wealth that's being created um, by that slaughterhouse. He chose Morel because Morel uh, had a long history, but it also had a troubled history. There was a lot of union uh, fights. There was a lot of, of strikes. Um, at some point, uh, the National Guard was called in in Ottumwa, Iowa, which is an extraordinary place. I went there to actually um, see the place. Um, and it's like a lot of Midwestern industrial places, which is it's really been hollowed out by deindustrialization. And now we're looking at reindustrialization through investments from abroad. So JBS, it's a, a, a Brazilian meat company, has actually reinvested in that production site in Atumwa. Um, but Morel uh, was ripe for reinvention. And so uh, he took it, uh, took it on. Um, and um, he actually released uh, these folks to uh, reorganize the plant. Um, so a guy named Harry Hansel, who had been there during all the fights, um, he kind of got chased out by um, the, the union, which is a local P1, one of the oldest, if not the oldest, um, meat cutters union in, in, in the country, um, back to the headquarters in Chicago. But when Eli came in, he's like, that's my man. He knows how to break these guys. <laughs> and so he brought him back um, and uh, he instituted a system that was very similar to IVP. Um, where they were going to insist on breaking uh, the beef down and the the pork down into uh, the cuts of meats that that now could be sold at a higher price um, at the grocery store, as opposed to selling the side of the pork or the side of the beef that would be broken down at the grocery store. Um, go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, we could go down um, the rabbit hole. Maybe I already have to some extent, but. Um, this is the one part of this um, multi-subsidiary, multi-parted uh, company where the story of his relationships with working people and with unions is really a sad one. Um, it's one where he did, had no respect for these unions, had very little respect for the specialized uh, labor that these folks had. Um, and he felt like uh, if if he could break them, then the whole company would be benefited by that and that ultimately the success of the whole company would convince many of these workers that he was right and they were wrong and they needed to embrace the future. Which is interesting that later on he takes on another role with working with unions, but with this specific union, with this specific industry, he took the hard edge. Um you think something had to do with um, the fact that he saw what was going on in New York City with with his, watching his father in the kosher business of, of butchering and dealing with those kind of men? Or was it he's just fresh and has to figure it out and I have to plant my my foot down and say, I am right. You're going to be wrong. Trust me on that. You're always going to be wrong. I'm going to be right type thing. Yeah. You know, this is a situation where I should mention the archive because the archive is really thin 
on Eli. I had to search high and low um, for evidence of what he thought and what he did. Um, and so there's somewhat there's some speculation that you have to engage in, but the fact that his father came to New York and was a, a, a kosher butcher and then landed at a time when the butcher's union was so corrupt, right? That he it had to make an impression on him. And I feel like that's why he made this the exception to the rule of social responsibility elsewhere in the company. He saw these people as, uh, you know, holding on to a past that was not good for them and not good for the future of capitalism. Um, and so that's why, uh, you know, I think that that he uh, chose to pursue the idea of breaking the union um, in this case. Um, and it's very much informed, I think, by what he saw in his father's dealing with this. And, you know, his father, like I said, I don't have any evidence that he was part of the union, but he certainly was a newcomer to this world. Um, he would have had to uh, figure out how he's going to put his oars in those waters, um, and he would have had to uh, accommodated those power structures. And it, it must have been very difficult for, for Ben Zion, who is what, what, the, what was his father's name. Yeah. Right. It goes back to the psyche of what you witnessed in the early part of your life it affects you for later on. Yeah. But he had his faith and he didn't stop there. And then he decides to take on one of the most notorious companies, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> he goes on to take over United Fruit Company. We won't get into the details of the acquisition. What I learned a lot, I didn't know all that kind of stuff really goes on with acquisitions and stuff. And right. it was actually kind of like at the edge of my seat. It's like, oh my God, how's he going to get there? But yeah. he takes on the most controversial company and you can say in the world, why did he take this one on? This is a massive undertaking. Um, what was his end game with this company? Well, I think when he was thinking about going from AMK uh, to something bigger, um, he set his sights on the food industry. So initially he looked at, um, you know, the retail market and he looked at AMP and uh, that was a natural place because of the kind of um, grocery store economy that's born after World War II. Um, but he thinks he decides very early. You know, the margins are poor in, in grocery, um, and AMP is actually kind of a dying company that ultimately stumbles to its death um, in the '70s. It probably should have been sold a lot earlier um, and reinvented. Um, it's actually reinvented elsewhere, right, um, with Safeway and the West and what have you. Um, but he does see, you know, all this potential at, of, of owning um, the production site. And um, he gets really invested in this idea that, uh, you know, he could feed the world to some extent. Um, and questions of famine um, go hand in hand with questions of overpopulation. Surviving World War II meant that, you know, there's an opportunity to take some of that technology and apply it to the Green Revolution. And so we have more productivity, but we also have growing populations around the world. And so he becomes very invested in being part of that solution. And I think it comes out of being a rabbi. Now, people have asked me, you know, was he a believer uh, and a practitioner of tikkun olam to heal the world? Um, he, he was not that. He, he was um, someone that came from a very orthodox 
a view of the world, but he was very much influenced by the idea of doing no harm to the world and to try to make the world a better place from what he witnessed in the Holocaust. Um, and so uh, he he made this big decision to move into to food production because it had this potential for doing good, not just domestically, but internationally. So what better opportunity to do something internationally than taking a company that's already uh, internationally uh, oriented in um, United Fruit? Uh, United Fruit, who is producing bananas and uh, other fruits, but primarily bananas and mostly Central America at this point, but also in South America. And he saw that in some ways it was a backwards co uh, company and that it had all this negative baggage, right? In 1954, it conspired with the CIA to overthrow a democratically elected uh, government in Guatemala. Um, earlier than that, there was, uh, uh, you know, the subversion of uh, worker power in, in Colombia um, with a massacre in, in the downtown district um, that was, again, supported and, and advocated for by the United uh, Fruit Company. And so, you know, he he thought that this was an opportunity to uh, take a company that still had some life and turn it uh, to a social good. Um, mm -hmm. And he really did that. Now, there was skepticism in the very beginning, but, um, you know, he ultimately persuaded uh, people, uh, most notably um, correspondents from prominent newspapers, such as the New York Times and the Boston Globe, uh, to document this transformation of United Fruit. Um, and it had a lot to do with how he treated the workers there. So, um, he became a friend of the uh, um, Citra Terco, the, the um, union that was there. He worked with a guy named Oscar Gale Varela, um, who was one of the giants of the labor movement um, in, in Latin America and in Honduras. Um, and in fact, Oscar Gale Varela said, we want to work with Eli. We want United Fruit uh, governing um, our lives and the future, not the corrupt government um, that uh, exists, um, that, uh, you know, that is ruled by a man named uh, uh, Oswaldo Lopez Adiano, which plays a figure, uh, plays a, a prominent role in this story. Yeah. Why, why, why start this whole ideal of social responsibility by the corporation for the workers, for this specific worker class, for this specific, you know, uh, country you could say honduras guatemala and all those others did, did something shift in his belief in his faith and uh, how he looked at the world yeah i think the thing that shifted was um what he saw in the farm worker struggle and caesar chavez so he gets to this idea of reforming united fruit through the united farm workers um because when he buys united fruit um, what's included in United Fruit uh, is interharvest. So it's already a multinational, multi-subsidiary corporation. The predecessors had accumu uh, accumulated subsidiaries and one was interharvest. And um, in, interesting, um, his uh, son and daughter, uh, Judith and Leon, um, they're going to college, including Leon goes to college at Dartmouth, uh, where I work now. Um, and they're there uh, in the 60s, and they're watching the farm workers movement unfold into the 70s. And they're 
you know, move like everybody else um, in in the United States. And they think that UFW and Cesar Chavez uh, make a good point about the need for justice in our food system. And so once he becomes uh, the owner, essentially, of Interharvest through acquiring United Fruit, he decides that he's going to do right by this movement um, and um, in in some ways right by his children who really kind of persuade him um, to uh, take the side of the, the workers and take the side of the UFW and sign contracts with UFW and break those contracts that uh, his predecessors um, and the rest of the industry signed with the Teamsters. Um, and he tries to work with uh, Caesar as a partner to a new type of, of food business where um, the business can serve the shareholders in terms of uh, maximizing profits, but you maximize those profits by uh, having the union uh, label on everything that you sell. Because the world is now much more conscious of the injustice behind those foods that you're selling, right? And if you have that union label, it is a, a communication to the world that this is socially just food. Um, and he, I think also because he was a rabbi and because he was committed to uh, spirituality in the public world, um, he appreciated that Cesar Chavez, although a different religion than him, um, mm -hmm very much a, a Catholic oriented, right? He loved the ways in which uh, Chavez brought his spirituality to the movement and to the public. And so I think they they saw it uh, in one another, like spiritual uh, co-travelers that could do right in the world by uh, working together and uniting with one another. So, you know, the 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 getting to to Honduras, um, and and the the transformations of United Fruit really travels through first California and his collaborations with Chavez and the United Farm Workers. I think what the story you're gonna have to tell is um, which sums up exactly what you said is Passover with Chavez at his home, and with Passover it's it's not only retelling the story of of the Genesis. But it's also a time for learning, and it's also a time for ex explaining where your thoughts are and your theories. Like, so, could could you tell us that story of like what Eli brought to the table, and they're sitting? In, one, I can't imagine that Chavez was at a Passover table in Connecticut. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in Westport, Connecticut. Westport, Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I I think that of all the Jewish holidays, um, you love Passover and the. Uh, practice of Passover the, the most and the Seder, right? Yeah. Uh, so that which he did was uh, he would ask his family members uh, to um, share uh, wisdom through other people's writings, and then they would read them out loud. Um, and so I have a lot of that in the book, right? But he chose uh, readings um, that um, highlighted the CEO's role or the the leaders uh, the the leaders of business role in society to do good, to not just do what the will of the shareholders are and not to serve just the shareholders, but to uh, have a greater impact on society. And I think through those readings um, and, and that he assigned to everybody that came to the Seder, um, he is really communicating his priorities. And um, he invited Cesar Chavez and Anna Pujarich is a very important kind of 
interlocutor. Um, she's someone that um, is a, a philanthropist and someone that facilitates wealthy people giving to worthy causes. And she's based in New York. She herself is half Jewish. And, and she's uh, uh, someone that comes to the, the Seder the first time on behalf of the United Farm Workers, but ultimately the second year that uh, he he hosts, um, he he brings uh, Chavez. Chavez comes to the Seder. Um, so this is an opportunity. Uh, I call this chapter Israelite because I think he sees in the farm workers and he sees uh, in Chavez um, people whose lives and their their history mirrors his own um, because he was a migrant and he was cast uh, out of his native lands um, by uh, hatred to some extent and by deprivation. And he's drawn to the United States um, by what immigrants say today is seeking a better life. And that's exactly what the farm workers are trying to achieve and what Cesar Chavez was trying to achieve on behalf of, of these workers. And so the Seder is a place where they can celebrate shared histories, but from different cultures, different religions, um, and even different languages, but still agree that this is the common goal in the world. And that this company, uh, United Fruit, excuse me, United Brands, which he calls the whole thing, generally, but inter-harvest particularly, could be a vehicle for presenting a new way of doing business that serves these Israelites, Jews and Mexicans to some extent, as well as Filipinos and the other groups that uh, constitute the farm workers. This is such a radical idea for the early 1970s, completely radical. No one's thinking this way. Everybody... He he's bringing not only his faith that we learned from the Talmud and the Torah to bring it. You know, of course, there's the story of the Beva Mitzvah Mitzvia um, that talks about you know working, you know, respect the workers out of the Talmud. But he is going against all what all of the I hate to say it, the Protestant owners of most of the businesses and corporations in the United States on the whole idea of the Friedman theory of business, laissez-faire type stuff. You know, how all right one. Can you explain his theory on how we're supposed to be doing things for a social contract with this new society yeah, of yeah. the 1970s? But also, what was the kickback from other businesses saying, you can't do that? Yeah, well, so Milton Friedman says, this is bunk. You should not be doing anything <laughs> uh, for, for social change or for anything but the stockholder's profitability, right? And this happens exactly the same time, this advice, in the New York Times – Right from Milton Friedman at the very same time that Eli is tilting against windmills and saying, we're going to change the world by changing United Fruit and, and creating this uh, company called United Brand that's going to do good in Honduras. It's going to do good in California. Um, it's going to unite with unions and union leaders uh, like Oscar Gilvarela and Cesar Chavez. And you'll see what I'm doing in, in Iowa and Morel is going to work out for the better too, but it's mostly like focused on California and, and, and Honduras. Right. So he's very much tilting against windmills here. Right. Um, but in terms of uh, his philosophy, um, I think we have to back off on the idea that um, he was that enlightened um, because, because, you know, part of his um, philosophy was that, he didn't think it was good 
uh, for society to be that dependent on government. So in some ways, he really embraced, uh, you know, the Nixon uh, message, which is we need to downsize our dependence uh, and a Republican message. Um, I don't have any evidence of which party he uh, uh, voted for, but certainly he seemed like a Republican, but a Republican who believed that they needed to cultivate a faith in um, private business um, to be uh, the entity in society that average citizens can depend on and to lower the cost of, to all of society through taxes, right, of big bureaucracy. So he wanted to reduce kind of government bureaucracy. And he felt like the best way to do that was to have uh, men of enlightened uh, perspectives leading companies like United Fruit that employ most everybody. And in Honduras, for example, it, it, it did employ most people in that country. Um, and that those men of good conscience would do right by their employees and therefore by by doing that do right by society and reduce the dependence of working people, poor people on government. So he was really an advocate for shrinking government to some extent, right? And we see this um, in, in a, a speech that he gives and then ultimately he, he published an article um, in the Harvard Business Review, where um, he goes to the agricultural seminar that has been going on for many decades, still going on at Harvard. Um, but he invites Chavez to go with him. Uh, Chavez doesn't make it, but he he voices, you know, this social responsibility that CEOs have, but at the same time, a kind of anti-dependence uh, on government. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, he was creating his own government with the United is his companies anyway. So, right. Yeah. So he had his own there. All right. You write biographies and I've talked to a few people already in this podcast, I've written biographies and you get to know the person inside and out. You become a good friend. You came a brother or a sister or something like that. Who is Eli to you? Was he a people pleaser? It seemed like he was trying to please everybody at once except himself because we know what happens at the end with himself, you know? Um, yeah. Who was this Eli that you see writing this book? Right. You know, um, the Cone brothers actually made a film <laughs> that um, uh, really cites his history. It's called Hudsucker Proxy. But it's actually another Cone brothers film that I think best captures who he is. Um, and that is a serious man. Uh, many people described him as a serious man um, who believed that it was important to carry their faith and their spirituality into public life. And that it was to the benefit of all. And I think that that was a kind of constant in his life. And that's why I think that um, we have to respect that even though he didn't ultimately continue on the path of being a rabbi, he, he uh, integrated a lot of those lessons into um, his life. And he, he stayed conservative, frankly, um, as a, a person um, who presented himself as a serious person, as a person who was trustworthy. You know, he was someone who was putting together this huge conglomerate, uh, this multinational that we call that he called United Brands at a time when other uh, men were doing it, but they were uh, people that were mischievous. Um, so guy like Charlie Blue Dorn, who I read write about, um, who 
created golf uh, and Western, who died <laughs> mid-flight back from the Dominican Republic, uh, allegedly having sex with uh, one of his um, uh, many girlfriends or mistresses. Right. Um, and he, he lived this kind of extravagant life, uh, Blue Dorn. But Eli was contrary to that. Um, he wanted to project a very kind of trustworthy, uh, immigrant-made-good uh, image, um, and that uh, he was tr sort of a representative uh, for immigrants, for Jews, um, and for people that uh, uh, could be trusted um, with their money. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I I write about another influence on his life, uh, which was um, uh, David Lilenthal. Uh, Lilenthal was someone uh, who also advocated this, right? He was someone who ran the Atomic Energy uh, uh, Commission. Um, he created the Tennessee Valley Authority. Um, and he was sort of a model in some ways for what Eli became in the merger uh, mania moment that happens after Lilenthal's heyday of you know World War II and the immediate post-war. So he wanted to be a kind of... Um, North Star for society. Um, but when it all fell apart, that's what actually led to his internal kind of combustion, if you will, his destruction is that when he realized that all of these things that he was advocating could not actually translate into a better world. Um, and here again, we have to speculate almost in every suicide case we have to. Um, but that, you know, it, it, he was just uh, destroyed by that reality, by that recognition that um, it, it it just was not possible in the ways that he um, had constructed for himself and for society. Mm -hmm. he, a serious man taking on too much serious issues, and everything falls apart. The domino effect falls apart, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that sad ending, but um, interesting story, amazing story. And you only can find those kind of stories in archives. And our last question we always ask our, our, our guests is, what collections did you use at the Ruther Library that really helped bring out the story? But specifically with this book, we know you've been, we know you lived here for quite a long time in our yes. reading room, yeah. but uh, for your other books, but um, for Eli Black, where did you have, where did you have to go? Did, you found some stuff here, but where else did you have to go to un uncover the story? Right. Um, so I went to Honduras. Um, and I went to Guatemala, but didn't find a lot there um, because of the ways that archiving is not as advanced and, uh, uh, you know, as, as artfully done as it is at Ruther. Um, but then I ended up uh, going to um, Colombia. Um, there was an interfaith uh, um, coalition that uh, began to advocate for social responsibility of corporations in the 1960s and 70s. And so they did studies of United Fruit and they they, they were looking at what uh, Eli Black was doing. And so they documented it to some extent and said, well, this is a kind of model of what we should be doing. So Columbia University was really important. But you know, I have to go back to the Ruther. I have to credit the Ruther because that's where most of the archive was. Um, yep. Eli Black uh, left very, few breadcrumbs for me to to follow um and that's normal for a lot of ceos uh you know but for the united fruit you know we have archives at here at dartmouth because one of the former ceos was a dartmouth alum 
you have archives in Louisiana and Tulane because that's it was one point based in in um, New Orleans. Um, but by this point, um, they're really trying to cover their tracks and to um, not share uh, the magic of their business. Um, and then when he dies, you know, it's kind of, it's very infamous. So a lot goes with, with, goes down, uh, with him. Um, but the fact that, uh, initially United Fruit was, uh, the, uh, target of a boycott when the lettuce, uh, boycott happens, um, through Interharvest meant that the United farm workers were collecting a lot of um, preparatory uh, uh, notes on how to go about this boycott, right? And so they knew how much uh, that United Fruit was making. They knew what the vulnerabilities were for inter-harvest, and they recorded all of those things um, in paper in preparation for a full-scale boycott. The other and the most important uh, uh, collection was the um, Anapuharich, uh, or it's called Andrini Brophy, I believe. Um, that that was her um, second husband's name. But in any case, there's a collection within the United Farm Worker Papers where this woman that brokered this relationship between Eli Black, who's giving money to all of these organizations, mostly Jewish organizations, starts to give money to the United Farm Workers and then she brokers this kind of uh, uh, coalition, if you will, between Cesar Chavez and Eli and travels with Eli on his private plane to California. And so she documents all this. Um, there's a moment of weakness um, for Eli where he strays uh, or he tries to stray from his wife, Shirley, with um, Anna and Anna rejects him. Um, yeah. It's very entertaining. Uh, but um Anna had a front row seat to all of this. And so then she submitted those papers um, kind of when I was uh, maybe halfway through the book. Um, and I actually tried to talk to her. She was in, uh, she retired in in Arizona and um, I called her and she had already kind of gone into a period, uh, like a stage of dementia. Mm -hmm. Um, but was really interesting what she said to me on the phone. um, And, you know, there's no oral history because they were signed off on it, but she just couldn't believe that, that uh, Eli killed himself, that he jumped from the Pan American building. Um, She believed, and many people have said this, he was killed by someone. Right. Hmm. Um, But I think that uh, as we see uh, in all of the, um, uh, archives that I unearth and all the stories I tell that there was good reason for him to feel so disappointed by the time he gets to 1974 in the performance of this company that was supposed to save the world. And now, you know, he's uh, fending off takeovers from within his company. Um, he's being questioned uh, by the uh, business uh, newspapers, um, correspondents who were his friend and talking about how he's like uh, the cat's meow. And now uh, he's someone that needs to be uh, challenged and maybe overthrown. And yeah. so rather than suffer that indignity, um, he took his own life. Yeah. 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 And not to, not to mention also uh, a hurricane devastating the crops. 
Uh, The possibility of bribery poking around a bit. Well, there was definitely bribery, but the difference is bribery, but it didn't come out then. But he knew it was going to happen, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's the the people that were threatening from within United Fruit and the Boston office to overthrow him uh, were dangling the fact that they knew that he had paid that bribe. Now that bribe was requested by uh, Oswaldo uh, Lopez Ariano, right, in two payments. Um, Nevertheless. He took the bait, he right? Um, and I think also the the whole issue of uh, hurricanes, I think that's really interesting in light of what we think about uh, the environmental change or climate change today. I think that we see the seeds of what we're leaving, living with today, and it may have already begun in some ways because the number of storms that he had to deal with um, are ones that just kind of got su- successively more destructive and ultimately this uh uh the the, the last one really uh upends his business and his hopes and it all utter, utterly destroys the company right right yeah the storms kept building and building until the superstorm hit him and he couldn't deal with it anymore yeah yeah matt this has been a wonderful conversation and yes we went on some tangents but i loved it it was excellent it down <laughs> deep holes um I appreciate you writing this book, uh, Eli and the Octopus. Um, You have a great day, man. Thank you. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Actually, my neighbor's on strike. She's a SAG member. Okay. Yeah, she does theater here. Oh, okay. So she's a one-person picket line. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get our SAG cards. Yes. And then we'll come to work and we'll say, we're sorry, but we're on strike. Yes. No, we can work here. (laughs) Oh, we can't record the the podcast. And that, that is why we haven't released a new episode all summer. I don't think I can actually say that. We can say in solidarity of the brothers and sisters out there who are writers, our our labor writers, we took a hiatus. Yes. (laughs) Our intro will always be warning. This is about humans. Depressing things happen. Depressing. <laughs> Before listening to the, the, the tales from the Ruther, take Xanax. <laughs> that will be our logo now, Xanax. Sure. <laughs> Sponsored by Xanax. <laughs> oh, do you think we could? <laughs> we can get the new stuff. Eli and the Octopus, the CEI. C- Why can't I say CEI? C I O. C E O. Try it again. <laughs> <laughs>
Ah, <laughs> uh, the blooper reels are back. Oh, boy. <laughs>